Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. We're so glad that you're joining us today because we're going to have a great show for you. Today is November 17th, 2016. Whenever I get the opportunity to interview a senior scientist, I get pretty excited. It's really my passion to stay on top of the leading research and development in the medical field that happens really on a daily basis. Our special guest today is Dr. David Hava, and he is the Chief Scientific Officer at Pole Matrix Incorporated, and he leads the research and development organization in the development of inhalation products in the Ice Beer Dry Powder Delivery Platform, and we're going to be asking him just what that is. Some of us may not know what what that involves. So let's bring him on to our show now. Hello there. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Denise. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I like to start my show out by asking my guest, how did you get on the path that you're on today? Yeah, well, uh, it started uh, back in a, just an early interest in, bi- in biology uh, you know, back back in college, and uh, I became very interested in in just asking scientific questions um, at sort of a basic science level, particularly mm-hmm. microbiological questions, and uh, that sort of prompted me to get a, a PhD from Tufts University here in Boston, um, and then sort of continue that education through a, a postdoc, where I, I continued to study some of those interests, and sort of all through that time, I I sort of became really passionate about wanting to work for a pharmaceutical or biotech company where, you know, all of that information and, and knowledge and passion could sort of be leveraged and applied to developing drugs and, and, and therapies for patients that are suffering from diseases. And a lot of what my background was in was always in respiratory disease or, or respiratory infectious disease. And so it was sort of a natural transition to come to Pomatrix about 10 years ago. And uh, I've been sort of working at the company and, and, and been involved in various aspects of that for about you know, almost 10 years now. So it's been uh, quite a journey and, uh, and quite enjoyable and rewarding to see some of these products uh, eventually get into people. I guess we've come a long way in our research uh, in comparison to, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the areas that we're interested in primarily or what the, our company is focused on are respiratory diseases. So these are things like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. And, you know, there's been dramatic improvements in care over, over, over 
certainly the last 20 years and sort of continued innovation to, to develop new therapies for, for these patients. And these are, these are extremely large patient populations. You know, you're talking about millions of Americans that, that suffer from both of these diseases. Um, so, the, you know, those, those have been appreciated areas, I would say, for, mm-hmm. for quite a number of years. You know, the first inhaled asthma drug was developed about 60 years ago. And so, you know, we've been sort of building on that understanding over that time. I think outside of that and in, in sort of smaller diseases that people may be less familiar with, some, some that are considered rare and orphan diseases like cystic fibrosis, there's been really dramatic and just sort of revolutionary uh, uh, developments over the last even five years, you know, that have just really put put products and drugs on the market that have dramatically improved uh, patients' lives and and outcomes. So it's 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 quite an exciting area. It's uh, it's quite a large area, and there's certainly a lot of interesting activity um, and unmet need that people are trying to address. Is cystic fibrosis wherein the longevity of a patient is quite short? Yeah, so the the median survival time of a cystic fibrosis patient is is 37 to 39 years. Um, so you know it, and that, and I will say that has actually been extended quite a bit um, over the last uh, 15 to 20 years or so. So um, quite a number of technologies and understanding the disease has has advanced to the point where you know that that number was was much much lower you know uh mm-hmm. even 10, 10 to 15 years ago so yes yeah, cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease so um there's a, a defect in a in an ion channel that um mm-hmm. typically is involved in regulating the uh, the um, homeostasis in your lung and how you can clear mucus from your airways and so there's a defect such that those patients aren't able to clear things from their lung very well. They get mucus buildup, and that buildup makes them susceptible to infections. And those infections just really impact their lung function over time. So they have, they have just sort of chronic difficulty in breathing and, and clearing things from their lungs. So um, mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough one. One way people can think about that and maybe maybe have some appreciation for what these patients live with is to, is to try to uh, breathe through a straw, you know, like a skinny mm-hmm. straw that you drink the soda with while you're holding your nose. And that gives you kind of a sense for the airflow restriction that these, you know, people are living with daily and, and, and only compounded by things like exercise and, and um, other sort of stimuli. So, but uh, but but a lot great improvements in that area, you know, over the last several years, for sure. Our subject today is the trends to watch in inhaled drug delivery. Why don't you inform us about your product, Spears Dry Powder Delivery? Yeah, sure. I, I would. I'd love to tell you a little bit more about that. So, um, yeah. So we're our company is focused on developing drugs. Uh, that can be directly delivered to the lungs by inhalation. So we have chosen to focus on applying this technology to respiratory diseases. So some of them are the ones we just spoke about, asthma, COPD, mm-hmm. CF. And inhalation products have been used very frequently in these patients for, for a number of years, and many of these products have been quite successful. There's really two types of traditional technologies, if you will. So one is called a meter dose inhaler or an MDI. And this is one that most people might be familiar with. It's kind of your 
classic asthma puffer, if you will. It's got a plastic mm -hmm. mouthpiece. Uh, it's got a metal canister that holds the drug, and you sort of push that down. And when you, when you, as you're pushing it down, you inhale the drug. Um, so that's probably one a lot of people are familiar with. The other type, so that's a liquid product. Um, the other type of products are tend to be dry powder products. So these are uh, formulated also in a portable device. And the drugs are formulated in a way with a, with a carrier uh, that's usually a sugar that helps the drug uh, come out of the device, aerosolize, so that it can be inhaled into the lungs. So the vast, vast majority of products that you'll see for, for any of these indications are formulated in those types of technologies. So, And those are great, uh, but they're limited, and they are very you know, tailored towards small molecules, so chemi small chemicals that are quite potent in which you only really need small amounts of the drug to get to the lung for the activity. Um, and that, that's great, um, but that limits the types of products that you can develop, and it, we think it really restricts uh, the types of drugs that can be developed to address other unmet needs. Um, and so there are several limitations. So if I can talk about those, I can sort of put in context for what we're trying. These are some of the problems that we're trying to solve. Great. So one, and, and a big one, is the efficiency at which the drug is delivered to the lungs from those MDIs or lactose plunges is quite low. Um, so of the drug that is coming out of the device, only about 20% of that might actually meet, reach the lungs. And so the other 80% is either getting stuck in the device or depositing in the patient's throat and the patients are swallowing that. And that's not getting to the spot where it needs to get to hit the target and really improve the outcome. So it's quite inefficient, but if you only need that small 20%, then, then that's fine. Now, is that um, the for the dry is, powder? Is that for the dry powder? That, yep, that's typically for a dry powder. The MD, MDIs are also somewhat, uh, can be somewhat inefficient, but a lot, yeah, a lot of what I'm, I'm, I guess I'm referring to is are the dry powder inhalers where um, they can be quite, quite inefficient. Um, another way that sort of bears itself out is just a very small amount of drug can be put into those uh, formulations. So again, if you're only trying to deliver a little bit of the drug um, to the lungs and you can deal with that inefficiency, again, you might have a suitable system. Uh, and the last is the performance of those, so how much of the drug comes out uh, and where it might deposit in, in the lungs is dependent on how well the patient can inhale. And this is a big one, particularly when you're talking about patients that have pulmonary disease or lung disease, and they might have bad days where they can't really inhale very well out of their on their device and get their drug. So they get very inconsistent amounts of the drug from, say, day-to-day -day or dose-to-dose. -dose. So you know, we've been working on really for the last, I would say, you know, six years or so on a new technology. So we call it iSPERS. Um, in which we're trying to solve these limitations. So we use a slightly different technology than, than the lactose blends. We use something that's called spray drying, um, which is essentially it's the same type of process by which you make dried milk. <laughs> you make liquid droplets that contain your drug and dry them, and we make the particles or engineer them such that they're the size that can readily be inhaled and get to the lungs. So Are they nano? They're not nano. So these would be a micron size. Um, so you know, a, a pretty typical um, size range, if you will, that you want that you can think about for inhalation. You want a particle to be less than five microns. So that allows it to get 
past your throat and sort of circumvent the curve um, at, at the back of your throat such that the particle can make that turn and get down into your lungs. So any particle less than five microns can get into your lungs. And then if they're between one and five microns, they'll deposit somewhere in your airway. The smaller they are, the deeper they'll go. Um, but if, with a lot of these things, you're getting you know, pretty broad coverage across the lung. Um, so, you know, we're making a very, very high fraction of our formulation be in that less than five micron uh, size range. So instead of getting 20% in the lung and 80% into the uh, uh, throat, we can get the opposite. So we can get as much as 80% of the drug that we formulate in our isperse uh, particles into the lungs and only a very small fraction uh, into, your, into your throat. So much, much improved efficiency. And we've seen that in some of our early uh, clinical trials where we've compared between uh, sort of, uh, a lactose blend product and our product to sort of demonstrate those advantages. Uh, the other big advantage is we can put a lot of drug into the particle. So if you have a particle, um, we might put as much as 80% of that particle might be the drug itself. So we have a very small amount of inactive excipients. Um, so if you start to add these things up, you know, 80% more efficient delivery to the lungs, 80% of the particle being drug, you can start to imagine that you're getting a lot. You can, if you want to, you can get lots of drug, milligram quantities of the drug uh, being inhaled into the lungs in a single breath or in a single um, capsule or, or whatever type of device that you're using. So, um, you know, those, those, are, those are the main factors uh, that we're trying to leverage. And when we look for opportunities, like we want to, we're very interested in developing products. We want to develop products that can help people and improve their outcomes. You know, the platform and the technology is nice, and that's a great basis on which to do that. But we try to look for ways to leverage these advantages to create products that other technologies might not be able to do. And that's really been the focus of what we've been trying to do as a company and from an R&D perspective over the last several years. My question is, with the liquid inhalers, are you effectively saying that they're not able to deliver the, the um, proper amount of, of um, pharmaceutical-grade medicine to a patient because they can't, it can't get small enough? In other words, you can't get, get it within that less than five microns? Well, so there's, there's, I guess there's maybe two things there. For, the, for other dry powder inhalers, um, the issue is really the efficiency at which the drug can be emitted from the device and mm -hmm. separate from very large particles that are blended in there to help the drug disperse. Okay. So that, that detachment part is very inefficient. So a lot of the drug is stuck to really big particles that can't you know, get past your throat and into your lungs. Okay. So for that's for a dry product. For for a liquid product, like like you're mentioning, so there are other types of liquid uh, delivery systems. Uh, you might be people might be familiar with something called a nebulizer, where mm -hmm. it, it, it's typically attached to a power source or a, or sorry, an, an air source or a pump, mm -hmm. um, and you fill a fill a, a, a respule with, with a liquid and you sit there for a long period of time and breathe on it while an aerosol is generated from that nebulizer. And so those particles that will come out of there can be small enough to get into your lungs, but again, it's quite an inefficient process 
and it takes a really long time for the patient to get their dose in that case. So as an example, if you uh, a common drug for cystic fibrosis is an inhaled antibiotic called tobramycin. That was originally developed as a nebulizer, uh, and the patients would have to inhale a 300-milligram dose, and it might take 10 to 15 minutes to take that dose. So over time, what was developed was a, uh, a dry powder product, same drug, tobramycin, but in a different format, where the dose could be delivered with a small number of capsules as a dry powder in only a few minutes. So the, you start to see some of those advantages come across in these these dry powder inhalers, like the ones that we're trying to develop with iSpurse, are portable, uh, so the patients can carry them around with them. They're inconspicuous, so they don't have to have a big nebulizer uh, system that, that they're mm -hmm. carrying around with them. And they're they can take their dose quite quick. So a, a huge fact a factor in cystic fibrosis today is uh, just the burden of care. So these patients will have to take almost two hours in the morning and two hours at night of therapy of, of different types to manage different aspects of their disease. So there's really no room for another 20-minute you know, nebulization or you know, longer uh, to add to that burden of care. So we're we're really, and, and one of our lead products is, a, is an inhaled uh, antifungal product for cystic fibrosis, and we've been really committed from the beginning to have the, the least amount of burden on the patient uh, in their ability to take the drug. So there's a, lot, a few different things in there, but um, we're trying to create something that's more patient-friendly and enable things that some of these other technologies uh, cannot how far are you away from coming to market? Yeah, so we have a we have a couple of a few different programs uh, that are in development. Um, one is a, a program that is is targeted at some of those bigger markets, which is called uh, a product called P, we call it PURO two hundred. It's a bronchodilator for COPD, um, and that's been in clinical testing. Uh, we've completed a, a, f a few different clinical trials for that, and we're progressing that um, through additional development and additional clinical trials. Uh, and we're uh, several years away from that product likely being approved if it, mm -hmm. if it makes it through those additional testing stages. And we're excited about that product. Um, I think the one that we're maybe more excited about is, a, is the product for cystic fibrosis, the antifungal. And that's still in preclinical testing, which means we're we're testing that uh, and, and doing studies that we need to do in order to allow us to get into the clinic and, and test the, the safety and efficacy of the drug in people. And we're hoping to start that testing um, at the beginning of next year, so early in, in to the middle of 2017. Great. Busy. Very busy. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, and a lot goes into that. You know, there's, there's a lot of components, both the making the formulations and developing the right, you know, compositions and, and product profile, the clinical piece, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's quite a team um, behind um, all, all the development activities to advance these things. How large is your team? Uh, uh, Palmatrix uh, is about 25 people or so. So we're, we're hmm. quite small or small, I guess, on, on, on the scale of things. And we have a, a very strong uh, commitment to research and development. So the vast majority of those 25 people are scientists and engineers and, and the people that are really you know, doing the development and, um, and advancing uh, these products towards the clinic. 
That's really interesting. I was curious. Are there other patient populations that you might be um, looking at with regard to fungal infections? Yeah, so um, there are, I I think. So we are uh, very committed to uh, developing this this fungal antifungal therapy for for patients with CF. Um, mm-hmm. We received uh, an orphan drug designation from the United States FDA earlier this year uh, for that indication. And you know these patients, CF patients, suffer from really two types of fungal infections. Um, fungal infections that are, are more like a bronchitis, where it might be similar to a bacterial infection that they have. A fungus, a common one is one called aspergillus that um, will uh, infect them. It'll grow in their lungs, and because of the growth and the inflammation that results from that, they will get uh, have exacerbations, so worsening disease. They may have diminished lung function, more difficulty breathing, and they need to be treated with, with antifungals to help that. There's a second population also within CF that has more severe disease, and this is a disease, uh, a subset, which is about, it's called uh, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, or ABPA. And this starts the same way. So the, a fungus or a fungal spore will be inhaled into their lungs. It will grow. But some patients are sensitized uh, to the antigens that, those, that that fungus produces. So what that means is they get an inflammation systemically, um, which is a similar inflammation to what occurs in asthma that really worsens their disease any further or even further than it than it typically would. So those ABPA patients are a really severe set of the population for which we think this drug could have a lot of impact. And so that's important for CF. Um, but what's interesting and what drew, also drew us to this opportunity and, and, and as a, a rationale to develop this is a fairly large number of asthmatics also have ABPA. So for cystic fibrosis... How are they tested for that? Yeah, so um, often it's like the the first type, it's a a diagnosis that involves several steps. Um, Often they do uh, skin tests, so prick tests, right, where they, which they do for, this is similar to what they would do for any really kind of allergy where you know they they prick your skin with a little bit of the antigen or the proteins that the fungus makes, and then they can look and see if you get a little reaction at that prick site. Um, and if you get that reaction, it shows that you have a sensitization, or or another way to think about it might be a susceptibility to responding to those to that fungus were it to you know infect you or get into your airways. So that's a big part of it. So that's a uh, a skin prick test positive, and then they also look for um, a, a specific, a few different specific immune regulators or modulators. So uh, something called IgE or uh, a cell type called eosinophils that circulate in the blood at uh, high concentrations um, when you also have some uh, detection of the fungus there. So. In asthma, it's about 1% of asthmatics, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider how many asthmatics there are in the world, it's really millions of patients that um, suffer from ABPA and could potentially benefit from a treatment uh, or an antifungal treatment like the one we're trying to develop. That is so fascinating because typically 
if you're diagnosed with asthma, I've never heard of further testing relative to it possibly being due to a fungus. Yeah, so I mean, so this is a this is a subset of uh, certainly of the asthmatic population. Um, this is most common in patients that are that would be diagnosed or, or in which their asthma has progressed to severe asthma, um, and a lot of that 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 progression is determined by the types of medications that are needed in order to manage okay. um, the disease. So. Um, this is a this is a, a a percentage of a percentage, if you will. So it's a it's mm-hmm. a it's a, a fraction of the severe asthmatics um, that have it. And so people that have s- severe asthma don't typically respond to the use of you know, the typical standard of care inhaled therapies, and therefore need additional things um, to help manage them. That makes sense. When you speak of fungus, in patient's lungs. Do we know why why it attacks their lungs and, and where they might have contracted it from? Yeah, so you know what's 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 really interesting is so all all of us are likely exposed to fungus uh, on a regular basis, right? So uh, fungus typically exists in the environment as something called spores, um, which is a you could think of it like a seed. Um, so at some point in the fungus life cycle um, where they're growing, they create spores. The spores can, or seeds can survive for long periods of time just in the environment. And they also fly quite well in the air, right? So you know, almost like a pollen grain type of thing would be another another way to think about it. And so there's uh, you know, fungus, fungal spores that we might, any of us might be exposed to in, in, mm-hmm. in, you know, from our couches or, you know, from just from the environment. And in most healthy people, people that have competent immune systems or don't have an underlying disease, those spores may never grow in the airway or they might be cleared from our airways before, you know, anything is ever, ever able to uh, germinate or start to grow. It's really in these in these populations like CF where regular clearance mechanisms, so the ability just to get mucus and trapped particulate out of their, out of your lungs effectively and efficiently, that's compromised. And so the, these spores are, are landing in a spot that is very rich and supportive for growth. Um, and in the absence of defenses that would typically be there to, to get them out of there. So um, in those situations, that's where you know these things can germinate or start to grow and replicate. Um, and once they do, you know, the immune system might be suppressed, and some of these clearance ag- clearance mechanisms mechanisms might be suppressed. And really, the the maybe the only way, or certainly a prominent way, to get rid of them is to try to treat them with drugs that that kill them um, and prevent them from growing. So. It's that similar kind of underlying pathophysiology, both in CF or asthma, where you know there's a predisposed condition that um, allows the fungus to sort of take hold and um, and 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 potentially grow and and cause um, issues and disease. When we spoke earlier about you know the large population that uses inhalers. Pulmonary disease 
stems from a lot of different reasons, I assume. For instance, if somebody has been a lifelong smoker or perhaps they've had lung damage as a result of pneumonia or bronchitis, their management of their respiratory diseases can be very trying. And I have an I have an email from a listener. Who is asking, um, apparently, um, she is using an, a powder inhaler, and she ends up coughing to the point where she can't use it on a consistent basis. It sounds to me like, from what we've been discussing earlier, it has to do with the actual delivery of the medicine into into her lungs, and perhaps it's getting stuck in her throat. Yeah. So, um, so I, I will say I'm not a I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I've uh, been working. You know, we we certainly are, are are focused on trying to develop therapies that are are tolerable to patients, and you know, safety and tolerability are really at the forefront of everything that we're doing. If we can't develop something that's going to be safe. Um, which is probably obvious, but uh, in this case also tolerable, so it it doesn't prevent something like cough um, and prevent uh, the ability of someone to actually take it. Um, these are obviously quite critical components to what we're doing. So um, so we think a lot about these types of mechanisms, and it's certainly plausible that um, depending on where the drug is depositing and um, you know. A, a given person's underlying disease and and what they otherwise might be sensitive to, you know, so certainly a lot of asthmatics are sensitive or allergic to certain types of um, particulate um, that they may may inhale and be exposed to. So there certainly could be people that are are more sensitive to some of these therapies than other. And that might be, they they might be sensitive to all all of these, you know, just particles getting into their airways or into their lungs. Um, but there certainly could be something to, you know, where these things deposit. And if you think about a very high fraction or a very high powder mass in something like a lactosplend um, being large and depositing in the back of your throat, you know, you, that that certainly can create a sensation that might not be all that pleasant and could lead to these this um, uh, type Coffee. of response. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, apparently she's using Abitrol. Albuterol. Mm-hmm. Abuja, maybe, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. which is a quite quite common um, asthma control uh, controller, you know, frequently used medicine. So, yeah, she says she's she has uh, sixty nine to seventy five percent lung function at this time, mm-hmm. and um, she's also asking. Um, have you run across anything to keep lungs from uh, deteriorating? In other words, your scientific research at this point is basically into um, formulating drugs that will assist them in their breathing. But have you run across anything that can actually stop the process of the deteriorating lung function? 
Right. Yeah. So that is a great question. And that is certainly um, at, at the center and sort of the holy grail of what, you know, a lot of pole matrix we would like to be able to do. And I think many people would like to be able to do in this space. So it's a, it gets to sort of the, I think the key point of um, perhaps where we've been limited by existing technologies. So these, these MDIs that I was referring to, or these dry powder inhalers, I mean, when it comes down to it, there are really only a few different drug classes that have been developed and are, are used consistently to treat something like asthma or, or something like COPD. Um, and these are largely maintenance types of therapies, right? So they are trying to alleviate some of the symptomology by allowing the airflow to be better and so that the patient um, can maintain, you know, not have breathlessness and sort of maintain their lung function um, over over a long period of time. Now, the the challenge is what what really drives um, continued diminishment in lung function over time are things that are called exacerbations. So, because of the environment in 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 someone with asthma or COPD's areas, they are susceptible to infections and things as as simple as the common cold or really benign bacterial infections that. Um, exacerbate their disease, um, cause them to need things like systemic antibiotics or, you know, really have stress in their breathing. And those are almost always associated with a loss in lung function. And unfortunately, that lung function usually never recovers back to where it was at the start. So if you're at 70% and you have an exacerbation, you might drop and then you're unlikely to recover back to 70%. And so you could imagine how that's kind of a and you might only have one of these or two of these a year, which that would be a lot. But you can imagine as you go through life, if you're having more and more of those, you know, you, you, you're, you're on a sort of a step-down progression. So what a lot of people have been focused on are really two things. One is what the emailer asked about, so someone, something that could stop or, or, or reverse the underlying disease. And... In COPD, at least, one of the ways that people are trying to do that is develop more effective anti-inflammatory medicines where you could eliminate or significantly reduce the amount of inflammation in the lungs. And by eliminating that inflammation, you might reduce or prevent um, the destruction of the lung over time. So it's still not a cure, but it's a, a maybe a more effective therapy. Um, and so that's something that I think Paul Matrix is interested in and, and, uh, and others are interested in as well. And we've sort of had a few endeavors into that in the past um, with some of our earlier programs. That's a programs. big one. That's a big one. And the other big one is our therapies that would either prevent or treat those exacerbations, right? And so there's a whole range of different mechanisms of, of action of drugs that you might think about um, developing to do that. Um, and a lot of people have spent a lot of time and a lot of money trying to develop drugs that are effective in doing that, um, where if you could theoretically prevent those infections or limit the impact of those infections and, and the severity of those exacerbations, you might prevent or, or at least reduce the severity of those kind of step-down losses in lung function. So um, those are those are incredibly important areas that that people are focused on. I think are, are, are some of the major unmet needs that still exist in in these types of uh, patient populations. Well, you've given us some really great information. I had no idea that 
if you were a current sufferer of, say, COPD, and you have bronchitis or pneumonia or some other form of infection, that that in itself will take your lung function down and chances of it coming back up are not the greatest. I had no idea that that is how it works. In other words, step down, loss yeah, of lung function. It, yeah, those exacerbations, I think, are, again, I'm not, I'm not a physician, but exacerbations are what we're, we're really – and the CF patients have exacerbations as well, and I think that's where – you know, we believe by treating some of these fungal infections that we can help, you know, prevent or mm-hmm. improve those those from occurring in those patients. It's it's really, um, uh, you know, across the board an effort to maintain and prevent further loss of lung function because the longer that lung function is maintained and doesn't drop, then the, the, the likely the better the outcome is for the patient longer term. And also not getting infections to begin with. I mean, you know, hopefully somehow you improve your immune function so you don't even get a cold. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, unfortunately these are anything that uh, again a healthy generally healthy person might, you know, have the flu for a couple of days or have a have a cold for a couple of days but can still go to work or have a dramatically different impact on patients that have underlying underlying disease. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, drug pricing. We've heard a lot about that in the news recently. And um, in your opinion, in what way has this been, you know, in other words, relevant to drugs for asthma and COPD? Yeah, so, you know, this certainly has been an area of intense discussion and debate, and uh, it's clearly something that uh, the pharmaceutical industry needs to to figure out uh, longer term um, in developing uh, therapies that are not only effective but can be paid for and that that are uh, by both payers, insurance companies, as well as as patients. So, yeah, so drugs for asthma and COPD are, are quite I think unique um, and they have kind of a unique place in this discussion in that um, a lot of the pricing discussions that have been circulating are often around um, either truly innovative, you know, novel, novel drugs, um, which is one end, of, one end of the spectrum, but also then on the other end, how generic drugs are, are priced and uh, why in some cases generic products are priced uh, so expensively. Um, and so what, what's unique here for these types of inhaler drugs is that generic products of inhaled drugs have been incredibly difficult to develop. Um, so there's been lots and lots of discussion um, between pharmaceutical companies and the FDA and European regulators on how these products should be developed and what the criteria should be for the approval of them because it's not as straightforward as uh, taking a pill from a bottle and swallowing it. So one of the big challenges are the products themselves. So they're complex, um, and these are almost always drug and device combination products. So as we do development, we're not only studying just the drug or the the dry powder, but we're also studying the capsule that it's in and the device that that capsule goes into and how the patient uses that device and, you know, all of these multiple factors and how all of these things interact. And so there's a lot of considerations that need to go into how similar should your product, if you're developing a generic, be to 
the product that's already marketed. So that's that's a big one and, and one that's not trivial. Um, and the other is if you think about the types of drugs that we're talking about here, we're talking about drugs that act locally in the lung. And for a generic, it's supposed to be exactly the same as the other as the product that's marketed. And a lot of times that is just measuring how much of the drug is in the blood of a patient. So you swallow a Tylenol and or an acetaminophen and you measure how much is in the bloodstream between product one and product two. And if they're the same, that's probably a good indication that they're going to be the same and work the same. With these drugs and these inhaled drugs, it's you're, you can't really assay or understand exactly how much drug um, is in the lung at any given time uh, accurately. And you also can't always get a great measure of how much drug is bound to its target. So when we look at that, we have to look way downstream in the blood after the drug has already come through the lungs to really understand um, how much the patient has been exposed to. So you're looking at something sort of sort of the river as opposed to the top of the mountain where the snow is. And so it's not, it has not been trivial for regulators to agree on what the basis for approval should be. So um, we've been involved in this area a little bit, so we're not a generics company and we're not focused on developing uh, generic products and, and the things that we're doing going forward. But we do have a product, the, the one I mentioned earlier that has been into clinical testing is a branded generic product of a commonly used bronchodilator. Uh, that we've been advancing through clinical trials. And um, based on our technology, we're trying to to look at the ab ability to develop this in a more efficient way um, than some other sort of traditional generic products for uh, in via inhalation have been developed. So it's a, it's a unique area. We're, we're uh, in, U in the U.S., we're hopeful that the first uh, really true generic, generic of a product called Advair, which is a multi-multi-billion dollar product, uh, that a generic of that product may be approved uh, by the FDA sometime next year. And so, um, yeah, it's just a really uh, interesting sort of sub subset and sub-tenor to this pricing discussion because of the complexity of the drugs. I, I understand it fully now. It is complex. You're, you're working on two different products at the same time. Yeah. The delivery system yep. as well as the drug. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and if you want to take it one step further, you're also trying to understand the product that you're trying to copy, right? So you mm -hmm. really have to understand there's <laughs> complexity on, on that side of the ledger mm -hmm. as well, and you have to understand that as much as you can understand your own product. So, um, yeah, it, it's quite a, quite an interesting space and, and an area that a lot of companies have spent a lot of time um, thinking about and working with the FDA with. And it, it, I think the, the, the positive is that we're close. And there's some of these products have been um, approved in, in Europe um, as generics, and that's that's the pathway we've actually been following with our products. So there's precedent there for these products to uh, make it to market via these pathways. And I think once the, the FDA has come a long way um, in sort of defining this and figuring this out uh, in the United States as well. Well, Dr. David Hava, you've been a wonderful guest. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, not really. I, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, you know, I think we're obviously really excited about about what we're trying to do and um, apply uh, what we think is a, a, a pretty innovative technology to uh, what we think are important unmet needs. Um, 
we have a bunch of information on our website. We've created an animation that um, describes how our particles work and how they get delivered to the lungs that certainly people can, are, if they're interested in learning more, could check out. It's pullmatrix.com and uh, also have some of our data that we've presented at some recent meetings up there as well if, uh, if people are interested in learning more about the program. So, but I really appreciate you having me on and, and having a chance to talk. You've been incredibly informative, and we really appreciate the time you've taken out of your busy, busy day with your team. <laughs> Great. Yeah, we no, wish I'm, the best. Again, Just yeah, the best. thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. Concludes our interview for today. It's been really fascinating. If you want additional information, please go to their website, www.pismpaululmasonmaryatomrix.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to you tuning in again next Thursday. Bye-bye for now. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal art. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar! Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! The first place to stop and the best place to shop is Kohl's Black Friday. Shop Black Friday deals online all week long at Kohl's.com. Get $24.99 toys, $7.99 after rebate kitchen electrics, $29.99 diamond and crystal earrings, and stores open Thursday at 6 p.m. Plus, only once a year, everyone gets $15 Kohl's cash for every $50 spent. The first place to stop and the best place to shop is Kohl's Black Friday. Select styles. Hours may vary by location. See store or Kohl's.com for details.